welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast, which I'm recording on Monday, May the 11th of the year 2013, having been home from my long, 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 grueling tour for now six nights uh, and back in the saddle, as it were. Um, you will recall, if you are a regular listener, that I was in 23 cities in 25 days and then had a weekend off in Toronto, did a little press and flew home. So it was 29 days on the road in all. And I'm so glad to be home and to see my family, albeit uh, not much of my family, as it turns out. My wife had to leave almost immediately to speak at South by Southwest. So if you're in Austin listening to this, which I can't imagine you would be. I mean, it's Austin. You should be out eating barbecue and getting loaded and hanging out with uh, all the other people there at South by Southwest. But if you happen to be in Austin listening to this and you run into my wife, say hello to her. The tour was amazing um, and uh, sometimes wrenching but always wonderful and so good to see so many of you there. Um, I lost count of the number of people who came along to say, oh, I listened to your podcast. Thank you very much for, for turning up. You can hear me pouring myself a cup of green tea here, another luxury I'm able to have now that I'm back in my office. If you didn't make it out to the tour, if you weren't in one of those 23 cities, but you're curious about how it went, uh, please uh, have a look at the videos. If you go to craphound.com, you'll find tons of videos of, um, of me doing the, essentially the same presentation with minor variations in different cities. And it all seemed to have paid off because Homeland is, as I say this, on its fourth week on the New York Times bestseller list. And with any luck, we'll be heading into its fifth. We'll know on Thursday. And there is also some high-quality audio coming of this. Uh, Thomas Gideon, he of the Command Line podcast, recorded a pretty high-quality audio of this. Uh, with me wearing some lav mics for it uh, when I did the talk in D.C. at Busboys and Poets, which incidentally is an amazing independent bookstore. So um, I'll put that into the podcast feed as soon as possible. Now, uh, those of you in the U.K. may have noticed that I haven't been around much doing many public things. Partly that's because I changed British publishers. I'm not with HarperCollins anymore. I mean, they still have my backlist. But from now on, I'll be publishing with the excellent Titan Books, and they're bringing out their first of my titles. It will be uh, Rapture of the Nerds, and we'll be pre-launching it, that is to say making it available before the official sale date at the Forbidden Planet store on Shaftesbury Avenue in London on the uh, 23rd of March at 1 p.m. I hope you'll come out and see me there. Uh, it would be really nice to kick off my relationship with Titan with a bang. Please tell your friends and come on down. Uh, I'm now working on some new fiction. I'm working on a new story for the Institute of the Future. They've commissioned a story for me, another Internet of Things story, a bit like the one I wrote for um, MIT's uh, Technology Review. Uh, that was called The Brave Little Toaster. This one is called By His Things Shall You Know Him. And it's a short story. should be done by the end of the week at the rate that I'm going, which is good. Now, the reading today is a reading of my Locust column, my last Locust column, which came out while I was on tour. Uh, it's a column called Ten Years On, and it features reflections on my 10th year as a novelist. It's been 10 years since Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom came out. Actually, 10 years, one month and eight days as of today, since my first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, came out. And it reflects on my first 10 years in the field, and also talks about um, maybe writing a prequel to Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which I think I'm going to do. And so preparatory to that, after this podcast, from now on for the next several weeks, I'm going to read aloud Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom as a way of becoming more familiar with the text again, so I can start thinking more seriously about what form that next book will take. 
and so um, that's the good news. I think it is rather extraordinarily good news that I'm going to be doing this. I'm very excited about it. I hope you are too. And with that, I will now read to you my column 10 Years On, which was posted on March the 3rd on locusmag.com and was in the March issue of Locus Magazine. On February 5th, 2013, Tortine published Homeland, the sequel to my first young adult novel, Little Brother. As I write this in January 2013, I'm just gearing up for the tour, which mostly involves sending semi-form emails to nice people who've asked me to do something time-consuming, explaining that I've only got two weeks left until I disappear into the tour, wherein I will see 23 cities in 29 days and never once come up for air, and so I've got to get everything done now or I'll never get it done then. I never thought I'd write a sequel. The allure of writing books has always been the experience of discovering and exploring a place and people that have been cooked up by my imagination. By the time I've squeezed the book out through my fingertips, I'm generally pretty sick of that place and those people, and frankly glad to be shut of them. But a sequel to Little Brother happened, and when it was done, I discovered that I'd thoroughly enjoyed it. It was like discovering that a whole gang of close friends I'd lost touch with after high school had stayed tight and were happy to welcome me back into their bosom. Thoroughly enjoyed it? It was amazing. Back to February 2013. When my publisher told me that the book would come out on February the 5th, I immediately flashed back to February the 3rd, 2003, ten years and two days before the publication of Homeland, when my first novel, Down and Out of the Magic Kingdom, was published. Down and Out was all kinds of firsts, the first novel I'd ever written, the first book of mine Tor ever published, and the first Creative Commons licensed novel ever. It's shocking to think that an entire decade has roared past in the interim, with 14 more books in print and another two, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, a non-fiction book, and Anda's Game, a full-length graphic novel from first second, in the pipeline. Realizing that I was a decade into my writing career literally staggered me. I missed a step while walking down the street and nearly fell over. And then I realized I had no idea what novel I'd write next. I have notes for about five books, but none of them feel quite ripe. The closest is probably a prequel to Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. It would be awfully nice to check in on those old friends and see what they're up to after a decade. Down and Out is a utopian novel, modeled in part on Kim Stanley Robinson's Pacific Edge, a brilliant, absolutely engrossing novel about a zoning fight over a baseball diamond in a small town in a future Orange County where all of humanity's existential problems have been decisively solved. Utopian fiction is often characterized as optimistic fiction because it's fiction about a future in which the existential crisis is behind us, where we know that whatever else transpires, we are likely to survive as a species. Our children and their children will live. Our deeds will not be forgotten. Life will go on. It's tempting to say that people who are happy in the midst of peace and plenty are doing nothing much of much. This, of course, is not true. Being miserable or happy has as much to do with your internal state as it does with the stuff going on in the rest of the world. Safety and a lack of material want is not a guarantee of happiness. Indeed, for the traumatized, it's the quiet moments when the yammering ghosts of past horrors can be heard best. The thing I loved about Pacific Edge is how good the people were, even as they got in each other's ways and fought with one another and made things miserable for each other. Robinson's book is a tour de force character novel that is deeply compassionate about the way that people of goodwill and good faith can trip each other up. And it is 
utopian in the sense that it is all set in a time and place where technology doesn't threaten to get away from its creators and destroy them. Lately, though, I've been thinking that writing books in which people act good while not facing much existential adversity is a kind of easy optimism. Much more interesting are stories about people who behave well when they are at risk for life and limb. The person who shares with his neighbor when doing so might mean his own starvation. The person who takes in an orphan when she can hardly feed her own children. In short, the most optimistic fiction you can write is fiction where people treat each other well under conditions of crisis. This is a narrative we desperately need to hear. In crisis, in the horrible, slow-motion, global economic environmental catastrophe that we inhabit, we form theories about how everyone else will react and plan accordingly. When Katrina hit, people nodded when soldiers and mercenaries shot, quote, looters in New Orleans, convinced that looting was the sort of thing that transpired after disasters. That was news. Hardly noticed months after the fact was the truth, that there was practically no looting in post-Katrina New Orleans, and that those shot particularly those shot by Blackwater mercenaries, were innocents who'd been killed in the service of a lie, the lie that human beings are bad, and that the first thing we do when the veneer of civilization falls away is kill, rape, and or eat one another. This lie was a racist lie, and it was a speciesist lie, too. This is the worst kind of lie, the lie that makes itself true. When enough people believe the libel against the human race, the vile calumny that human nature would have us all at each other's throats were it not for coercive force, it becomes a truth. If you are sure that your neighbor will kill you when the lights go out, the natural thing to do is kill him at the first flicker. And even if you're more reasonable than that, you still won't want to let a potential killer into your shelter. You won't want to share your food with him. You won't want to take in his children when they need it. In Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, I gloss over the technological revolution that leads to a world without scarcity, mortality, or want. But ten years later, as the world divides into the hyper-rich 1%, the richest 100 of whom could end world poverty four times over with their personal fortunes, and the vast precariat of people who can't seem to make enough to live or save enough to carry them through their dotage, it's all I can think of. As robots take all the old jobs and the benefit of automation are funneled into fewer and fewer hands, all I can think of is, what would happen if we could only play fair, if we didn't have to chop down our descendants' trees to get the food that we need to eat today, if we could stop compromising ourselves to make things and sell things and do things that we know aren't quite right, but that are somehow necessary to make ends meet. Technological revolutions are never bloodless. The Luddites had a goddamn good point somewhere in there. A just dividend from automation and higher productivity means that those with surplus-to-requirement skills don't starve, that their children don't starve, that their houses aren't taken from them, that their lives aren't ruined by the thing that saves us from drudgery. So if I write a prequel, when I do, who am I kidding, this is what I'll try and capture. The optimism of people who are kind to each other in times of adversity not in spite of adversity, but because of it. Not a cozy apocalypse where the useless people are killed off in a cometary eye blink, leaving the lucky survivors to pick up the pieces. Rather, a future where no one is left behind, where care and love and fellow feeling are revealed as the underlying fact of humanity, the reason that we have survived through the millennia, the nobility that makes our crises tragic to begin with. It's been ten years. I can't tell you how many people have written to me to tell me about the way that my books have influenced their thinking, 
Ten years on, if there's one thing I want to accomplish as an artist, it is to put a stake through the heart of the big lie of the human beast. Well, that's it. When you hear from me again, I will be reading to you from Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. Have a good week. Be good to each other. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week. <laughs>